The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. It's been almost a year since Ben Meng left his job as Deputy Investment Chief for China's $3 trillion of foreign currency reserves to take charge of the almost $400 billion portfolio managed by CalPERS, the largest US public pension fund. In this week's exchange, he talks to Tom Berkeley about some of the differences and similarities of the two institutions. He also explains why size has become more of a disadvantage when investing and discusses the challenges of having to hit 7% return targets especially with the fund only 70% funded. He also reminisces about growing up in 1970s and 1980s China and getting interested in finance when buying stocks on E-Trade in the dot-com bubble. So, Ben Meng, it's a real pleasure to get some time with you year on a day when you're already talking to the board of CalPERS. Yep. Um, before we get on to the, the job and the challenge of the investment, I wonder if you could just kind of tell us a little bit something about your background I mean, you grew up in the 70s and 80s yep. in China at yep. a time of tremendous change. You had this shift from, you know, communism to the the, the great opening that Deng Xiaoping ushered yep. in, yep. which gave a lot of opportunity and yep. which has led the way to many changes that have since played out throughout the world. What, what was that time like for you? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. You mm-hmm. know, a great pleasure to meet with you. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I often think about that, and as you know, in my first, uh, my, my first public debut at CalPERS, I gave a talk in January offset, talk about the, 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 the importance of knowing skill and luck, right? And I had to say, I've been very lucky along the way. So you, you touched on the question, so one I call demographic luck. You know, I was born in the 70s in China, and then in the 80s and 90s under Deng Xiaoping, as you said, they opened up China, which gave me the opportunity to come to the U.S., as I said, that if had had I born, were I born say in the uh, 60s or the 50s, I would not have the opportunity to come to the U.S. because it was too soon. What, what part of China did you grow up in, and what did you study there before coming here? Yeah, so uh, northern China is a, uh, a coastal city called uh, Dalian. It's about one hour flight from uh, Beijing, so northeast part of China. Uh, so when I was in China, I was studying mostly in, uh, engineering, yeah. so transportation engineer. And that was noticed later on when, when I came to the United States in 1995. I went to UC Davis uh, for graduate school, and that's exactly what I studied, uh, transportation at UC Davis. And you took a lot of spots, uh, took a lot of jumps along the way, but you've ended up very close to UC Davis here in Sacramento. I know, I know. Is that what's, maybe that's a, my destiny, right? <laughs> Davis in Sacramento is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> exactly. But tell me a little bit about, you went to Wall Street like so many did. Well, you yeah. went to the high school, you got a yeah. financial engineering degree, yeah. uh, you traded bonds on yeah. Wall Street. Yeah. Um, tell me about that formative part. What attracted you to finance and you know how did you get into the, the money management side as opposed right, to the right. selling product side? Right. Uh, again, by a serious stroke of locks, right? So as I said, I came to UC Davis in 1995 to study transportation. But at that time, I had a number of uh, colleagues in France. They were either studying computer science or double E at UC Davis. And as you recall, 1999 to 19, uh, no, 19, sorry, 1995. From 1995 to 1999, that's kind of toward the late end of the tech bubble. But of course, back then, we didn't know. And uh, I had all these friends who studied in computer science and double E, and they all they were talking all day long, IPO here, IPO there, how many millionaires here and there, and they were trading their stocks. 
So you know, I was enticed by all the commotion when you, when you were young. So I opened the eTrade account and I started you know uh, quote unquote trading stock. Not really trading. The only thing I knew back then was long. I didn't you know I didn't even know how to short or the concept of short, and I didn't know much about bond. Because everyone was talking about stock, right? Yeah. And technology stock, all the high beta stock. So I used however little money I had, so I started buying stock. Uh, no trading stock, because all I know is to buy. Technology stock, and of course I catch the market boom. I did pretty well. So one stroke, there's another stroke of luck. And then I saw, wow, this is easy, I could do it. Much better than engineering, so quote unquote boring, right? So exciting here, I can do it. You know, I, I of course I attribute everything back to my skill, code code skill, right? Uh, so I wanted to get some formal training in finance, and just so happened, Haas started the first program, uh, no, not the first one in the country, but first one uh, for, uh, started out its master of financial engineering program at Haas. That's and, the Haas School at the University of Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, yeah at UC Berkeley, mm -hmm. and I needed. Uh, to pay for the program, quite expensive actually. Yeah. Uh, so I had to sell my stock. Mm -hmm. So I, I sold my technology stock before the bubble bursted. So another stroke of luck. How I financed myself into uh, into Haas. And at Haas, uh, I really learned exactly as I intended. At Haas, I learned all the financial theories. Because I came from an engineering background, I had some training in mathematics and statistics, you know, time series analysis, stock, stock, stock calculus. But I didn't have the financial theory or the product knowledge. So I think Haas trained me really well from the theoretical perspective. And after Haas, again, you know, as any of the top MBA schools, in addition to teaching you the knowledge, they also broaden your uh, professional network. Mm -hmm. So through Haas, uh, I was connected on Wall Street, so I was hired by Morgan Stanley as a, a trader on the mortgage desk, in fixed income desk, on 1585 Broadway, I still remember. Yes. So that's how my transition from uh, school to Wall Street. And then on Wall Street, I quickly learned that the limitations of all the theories. So Haas pro prepared me very well with all the rigid theories, right? Uh, market efficient, investor rational, you know, all those stuff. And then you got on Wall Street, you realized that <laughs> there's yeah. there's a there's a lot of limitation with theory, so give me very good balance. Both the academic training as my PhD at UC Davis and the master in financial engineer at Berkeley gave me very solid theoretical foundation, but really uh, helped me is Wall Street. Attribute many of the good things to their to their own skill, um, and often it can be just catching the the market wave yes. or, or or pure luck. Uh, I take it that's something. How do you keep that in the front of your mind as an investor? Uh, here's my take. After so many years, that's why I gave uh, a lot of thoughts to uh, the raw skill and luck. So here's my take. That's where I tell students, when you are lucky, don't feel guilty. right? Grab the opportunity, run with it, because you won't be lucky forever. When other people are lucky, don't be jealous. Right? Just be cool with yourself. You know, there will be times, just you know, keep your eyes down, do the good things. There will be times that the luck will turn. Mm -hmm. right? So that's my take. Uh, do you have something equally uh, appropriate for when you are unlucky? Unlucky, just know if you know it's, uh, it's unlucky, you're doing the right thing. That's what we call a keep calm and carry on. Mm -hmm. right? Know who you are. If you're doing the right thing, because the outcome is always probabilistic. So in hindsight, you cannot judge your your investment decision by the short-term outcome. 
the investment decision quality and outcome quality in the short term is a loose correlation. So try not to succumb to short-term outcome biases, mm-hmm. but still focus on your skill. When you're out of luck, focus, keep on doing what you're doing, the right thing. Because the luck, as I said, eventually good luck and bad luck should even out. And in the long run, it's still your skill. Mm-hmm. So you left Wall Street, you came to CalPERS, you were in charge of asset allocation. Yep. And um, now you've come back in the top job as CIO, where you've yep. been here a little under a year. Uh, talk a little bit about how you see the challenge. You were talking to the uh, the board recently about, you know, a more subdued likelihood of subdued returns going yep. forward, the yep. drawdown risk. Everyone describe the challenge that CalPERS faces yep. and so many other investors. Yeah, there are a number of challenges uh, from the investment. Of, well, we speak from the investment perspective. One is our assumed rate of return, 7%, is a challenge. Uh, as you know, when 10-year note is around 1.5, 1.6, where do you earn the additional 5.5% on $400 billion? So that's a challenge. Yeah. And you, you, you fell slightly short of that last year? Yes, we are 6.6-something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also we're a long-term investor, so 7% really or longer uh, period of time. So we're trying not to, f- to fix it on one year, two year, three year number. Mm-hmm. So to earn the 7% return is the biggest challenge. And then also given our funded status is about 70%. Mm-hmm. So that limits our options. You know, if I if uh, we were 100% funded to earn 7%, I probably would have a little bit more options. But now seven, with 70% funded, you, are, you have to be very mindful of the drawdown risk, how much drawdown you can take. So that limits our uh, options. And the other one, again, the size. So size is a double-edged sword. It can be an advantage, can be a disadvantage. And in the current market environment, I would say the size is more like a disadvantage. To because earn. because of what? Because it makes it harder to be agile, or how, why does that? So work? make it hard, make it harder to be nimble, mm-hmm. and make it harder to uh, make a difference. There are some small niche strategies works, right? But it just doesn't move the needle for for four hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And would you allocate resource and risk budget behind it? You know, for a small amount of uh, uh, excess return. So that's the debate we have, but you know everything helps. So we, uh, in terms of prioritizing uh, different projects and strategies, you know because our size kind of limits. There's a cutoff. Yeah. yeah. Well, your predecessor Ted Eliopoulos had focused a fair bit on the cost side in yep. terms of trying to bargain fees down, yep. reduce yep. the number of external mandates. Yep. Yep. Uh, clearly, that's important, and a yep. lot of public pension funds in the U.S. are doing that. Uh, that only gets you part of the way, though. So, yep. tell me about. You know, what are your thoughts now? You've been in here for ten months. Yep. What's, what are you going to do to hit that ten seven percent bogey on a consistent basis? Right. So, what you mentioned on cost is very important. My predecessor, as I just mentioned, Ted uh, did a fabulous job in terms of uh, driving down the cost. And as we know, the cost if a dollar is saved, is a dollar saved. There's no un- un- uncertainty around that one dollar, right? When we earn some expected return, there's always volatility around that expected return, but the cost. Is, is very solid, a dollar cost reduction, dollar cost reduction. But meantime, we also understand that you know financial industry is quite competitive, and we cannot do everything in-house. Yeah. And we have to engage external parties for the things we cannot do and the valuable uh, additive to the portfolio. So on that front, we don't mind paying for performance. So we have to look at cost as a very holistic and, re- holistic and realistic way. Uh, we don't mind 
mind paying for a、uh, uh, performance, but at the same time we look for every opportunity to drive down the cost of the fund. So, what's the current balance of money that's managed by the the Calper staff and money that's managed externally? And are you happy with that, or is that would you do you see any changes?、Um, yes. So let's just say this: so most of the public、uh, assets, so global equity and fixed income, global equity is fifty percent. Fixed income twenty eight percent, so this together call is a eighty percent asset, almost a hundred percent of this eighty percent managed in house, and then on. And you do that because you've got good people, or are you largely passively tracking markets and not being as active an investor there? Yeah, so both,、mm-hmm. both are、uh, you know exactly as you point out, public markets tend to be much more efficient, and we are.、Uh, uh, Uh, in that、uh, market environment, we deploy a, a, a passive approach. Mainly, is a passive approach to the public markets. But in public approach, the the passive the passive approach. I'm sorry, passive approach. So we really focus on the tracking error done and the transactional cost get it done. And internally, over the years, Calpers have built a very strong team in、uh, execution. Back office, mid office, our operation very strong. Our trade execution is very strong, so because of our internal capability and also because market is so efficient, we position ourselves as a passive investor in public market mainly. So that's why most of the、uh, public assets, about eighty percent of the total fund, are managed in house. Now a lot of public pensions, as you know, are writing bigger checks to private equity firms because they've been producing the kind of returns that might help close the gap for、uh, for these institutions.、Yeah. Uh, Calpers is doing that, but you've got a very different take that the board is.、Um, is it, I don't know if they've finally dotted the i's and crossed the t's if it's、mm. done or if it's.、Uh, but you're you're about to launch a new way of getting a private equity. Can you talk about that? Yes. So I assume you're referring to what we call pillar three and pillar four of the private equity bundle, and our investment committee board did give us a green light early this year. I want to say March or April. Right, so gave us、uh, the green light to further explore the concept as an experiment. So the、um, the bottom of it is that back to your very first question: How do we get seven percent? So if I get seven percent, we really need to know what who we are and what the capital market looks today. So if you look at the private、uh, equity markets, so there are companies. The companies are staying private for longer. More companies staying private, and they stay for longer. So, which means that there have been a lot of wealth creation in the private equity market instead of public equity markets. So that's one reason, just to be dynamic. When the market opportunity set shift, you have to shift yourself. And for one, for two, private equity is the only as a class, historically speaking, has delivered a、uh, uh, more than seven percent in over a long period of time. The best performing as a class, the only as a class delivered more than seven percent. And in our most recent asset allocation exercise, you know, we, we, the first step you formulate your investment universe, and then the roles and then responsibility roles of each asset class, and then you formulate capital market assumptions. So in the most recent capital market assumption exercise, so private equity we believe will continue to be the best performing asset class、uh, among all the major asset class we invest in, and as well as it is also is the only asset class. Uh, is forecasted to deliver more than seven percent. But you're looking to allocate more, both more dollars to it, but also do it differently, differently. by setting up、yes. what this arms-length company that's、yes. going to be kind of like your own mini Blackstone. 
uh, I call the double arm length away from calipers. Double so, arm length, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, so exactly. So what you're trying to say that for us to hit 7%, we need private equity. We need more private, private equity, and we need it sooner than later. But you think about the challenge in private equity is that uh, for us, uh, in total, we manage about $400 billion. And we, our target, we try to get to 10% of that, so call it close to $40 billion. And we have been trying to, we cannot even get to 8%, so currently around 7%. And we look because you can't get out, you can't get into funds that you want to invest with. Um, simply, is uh, in private equity, the dispersion, the return dispersion among managers is much bigger than public markets, sure. right? And that again shows the inefficiency in that market. In public market, you you, you know very well. This year is a good performer. Next year is more likely than not to be a bad performer. Mm -hmm. uh, the mean reversion, so lack of a consistency which shows the market very efficient in public markets. In private market, because inefficiency, you can identify top quartile managers, and they are likely to stay top quartile manager you know, in the near future. The challenge is to get access to them and then get a sizable allocation, right? And uh, get access to them, that's placed to our strengths because our brand and our size, you know, often we have access to the top managers. But getting the size is a challenge of think from our perspective, we would like to build a diversified portfolio and say if you only work with top quartile manager by historical performance, by definition there's only 25% of top quartile uh, manager. But these top quartile manager, they don't raise funds all the time. They raise a fund maybe every three years or four years. Not only be faster, but cost three years, they raise a fund. And once they raise a fund, you don't want to be too concentrated, right? Yeah. Not only, not just you do not want to be too concentrated. From the GP's perspective, they don't want to give you too much either. They, they would like to have a diversified LP base as well. So you think about every three years of research cycle, you're only interested in their, you know, uh, the top quartile manager, and even the top quartile manager, you're only interested in their flagship funds, what they're good at. You further limit yourself, and then you want a concentration. So that's the challenge we have. But also in the past, we did. Uh, there are something we can do, continue to do, but it's on the edge. For example, restart the co-investment program, looking into separate management accounts, all the different structures. We are looking into it. It's going to help. Uh, all to, you know, add them together is going to make a difference. But the reason we're looking at pillar three and pillar four, the new business model, so it's really. Basically, they, they we call the lack of better word. They they are captive to calpers. Yeah. Means that they serve only uh, uh, one LP. So that is the calpers. So we get to the scale, and not only we get the scale, we also purpo purposely design these two models so that they have no competition with our existing GP relationship or our existing portfolio. So, for example, pillar three is tailored on the late stage growth companies, particularly in life science, healthcare, and then and then technology. Currently, we don't have that in our portfolio. Mm -hmm. And uh, so by Peter 3 focusing on that segment, we're not competing with our own portfolio or existing uh, GPs. And if you think of it, that makes a lot of sense. Think of CalPERS liability, longevity risk yeah. is, a, is a big risk to us. These are, you know, we, of course, you know, people live longer and healthier. This is all good. How the, the average CalPERS pensioner now, how long are they drawing benefits? Is it? I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the most recent we call the life, uh, the exp life experience study, we extended 
the uh, longevity by two years. Okay. By two years, and that two years alone increase our li- liability uh, significantly. Mm-hmm. This we want to see. We're happy for people to live longer and healthier, but at the same time pose a bigger challenge for, for us. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. But then think if you think of that as a liability, but in the past when there were not a lot of going on in, in, in healthcare and life science, there were not much you could do to bring the liability, you know, to bring longevity on the asset side. Yes. Because you have the on liability side already, ideally you would like this very limited option, financial option to hedge against the longevity risk. Until now, because there's so much going on, the te- technological breakthroughs, uh, you know, with the convergences of all new technology and, and uh, capital, there's a lot of going on in healthcare and life science. So now we want to tap into that, bring that on the asset side of our balance sheet so we can hedge against the longevity li- uh, liability. Yeah, all the big firms, KKR and Blackstone, are very big into growth equity now. Yeah. But you know, as you mentioned, the difference between a good private equity firm yeah. and a so-so or mediocre firm is great. Yes. Uh, it's hard to get access to the really good firms you're going to start up your own captive private equity firm. How do you know they're going to be good? Well, that's the question. So there are a few things. Uh, we're looking for uh, experienced veterans, you know, uh, well-established uh, team or individuals to build a team, and we'll be working closely with them. So this would not be a brand new team. So what we are hoping for, one of the uh, groups we are targeting, you know, the first generation proactive founders that either retired or in the process of uh, transitioning to the next generation. And for most of the firms, they build redundancy in their succession planning, right? So for those who somehow did not or uh, do not get choose, chosen to be the successor, most likely they are going to leave. But this is a highly qualified, achieved talent, and they can build a team. Sometimes they, they bring their own team. Uh, uh, lift out the team from their firm. And that's kind of the uh, situation we're hoping for, that you know, they would want to work with scalpers. From their perspective, they don't have to worry about fundraising, so at least a permanent, they are capital to, to us, but we are captive capital to them, long-term mm-hmm. capital to them. They can really build, focus on doing investment, sourcing deal, doing investment, instead of worrying about raising money, you know, uh, uh, investor relationships, so and also stay focused, uh, working with very pre- prestigious organizations such as Calpers. So that's the whole one of the strategy we're targeting uh, that group of people, not someone just brand new on the street. Uh, I spoke with one former Calpers executive, and you know clearly they're very interested in this. And on the whole, Calpers has done fairly well in private equity. Yep. But he expressed the concern that it'd be like hedge funds in the 2000 when Calpers uh, you know, went pretty deeply into hedge funds. Yep. The crisis came, it didn't pan out well, uh, performance was mediocre, fees were very high, and the firm exited. And you know, he expressed this concern that it could happen all over again in private equity. Um, you know, what, do you, what do you tell people, what do you tell the board, what do you tell um, beneficiaries about why this time around it's going to work in private equity? So in the past, we have made some mistakes, like all the organizations. And we try to learn from uh, uh, the mistake. So we, may, we try to make sure that it doesn't repeat. Uh, that's why we're taking so much time to deliberate internally and with our stakeholders. Uh, we engaged a number of leaders, industry leaders, you know, thought leaders, practitioners, uh, because again, because our brand, 
And over the years, in private equity, we have de developed very strong relationship with a, a number of uh, uh, industry leaders. So we're trying to pull all this together, and also we do this in a very prudent way. You probably have heard me uh, saying a couple of times on the record in public and in closed session that there are no specific timeline for this experiment, and there are no specific outcome. It, it is an experiment by nature. When we are ready, we are ready. When someone asks me, Ben, when are, going to, when are you ready? When are you going to find the team, bring them in? I say, well, when we find them, if it meets our criteria, it works, we'll let you know. But until then, we keep, we, we keep on working on it. The danger of this is that a high-profile project like this, you know, people may have the urge to try to deliver something to show it works or it doesn't work. So take the emotion out of it. No emotion investment into it. Really fact-based. And be very open-minded. This is experiment. We're going to learn, and we'll adjust our approach as we learn. And that's the nature of a, a, a experiment. So again, so we're taking very prudent, very risk-aware approach to uh, in designing this new model. Mm -hmm. There's been one other change here um, that the board's recently approved. That's going to cut down the number of board meetings, and have a smaller investment committee. Um, lines of authority don't really change all that much, but. How, how, do, how does tinkering like that help you do your job better and actually deliver the kind of returns that yeah. you need to do? So that is really a board governance discussion, a board governance decision. So we, as the investment staff, we try to stay out of that. But we welcome the change. We welcome change, I think, uh, by and large, is going to allow us more time and more focus on managing the portfolio, managing the performance of the portfolio, at the same time maintain or even increase the level of transparency and communication with the board and the stakeholders. So that that's the goal. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting because everything CalPERS does by its size, by the fact that it's California and so many things, every, it's always under a microscope. Uh, it's very public. You've got um, you've got politicians on the board and you've got the, the, all the other stakeholders here in Sacramento looking very carefully at you because it's very important to the welfare of yep, Californians. Yep, yep. Um, before coming here, you'd gone back to China for a few years yes. to work at yep. SAFE. That's yep. the arm of the central bank yes. that manages the reserves. Yep. Another case where you know, a very important job of managing you know, a good part of the nation's treasure, but yes. also you know, close political oversight. I wonder if you can talk about is there any way in which the, the, the CalPERS political environment is similar or different than what you faced in Beijing? Yeah. Um, I cannot talk too much about SAFE in Beijing. Yeah. It's just because, um, uh, uh, as you know, they are the largest part of money in the world, but they run in a very you know, discreet way, yes. right? So with all due respect to them. But it's sufficient to say that the uh, my experience from uh, $3 trillion U.S. dollars fund to $400 million really helps. And there's a lot of similarity, you know, uh, uh, we can learn from them, and not just them, all of our global peers. And I try to stay close to our global peers, you know, the Singaporean, the Canadian, you often hear about the Canadian model, right? So yeah. the Canadian, the Singaporean, the European, uh, the Asian, the Chinese, and Japanese, in which I have uh, GPIF, the CIO hero was in town. So that's the big Japanese that's uh, big, pension yeah, fund. Yeah, yeah. pension fund. Mm -hmm. so, by staying close and sharing, you know, uh, thoughts, uh, it's be mutually beneficiary. And particularly, as I said, that you know, coming from three trillion dollars back to four hundred million, uh, four hundred billion dollars, it, it's a big help. Um, but a lot of those, and especially the Canadians and the Australians, yep. 
have a lot more autonomy. Yes. And there's a political consensus that they can go out and make these big private equity bets. They can make these big infrastructure bets. They can invest with the Singaporeans or CIC, uh, some of these giant funds. You don't really have that kind of leeway. Uh, That's got to be a little frustrating, perhaps? I wouldn't say frustrating. It is a constraint. It's a reality, part of the reality we have to face. And each organization has its own challenge and constraints. Uh, but the Canadian model, you're absolutely right, that when they, they, they're much younger fund. So we were, CalPERS were founded in 1930s, right? 1932. 1932. The Canadian model, the, at least CPBIB, was founded slightly over 10 years ago. So they did enjoy the benefits of you know, knowing the past and redesign. So when they fresh out of the gate, they design uh, a different governance structure, right? Mm-hmm. So they purposely uh, designed way away from a government or civil service construct, very much aligned with the market. And uh, so, so that is um, the key difference. So, but we have to realize the reality we have and we work with that reality. You talked about the risks out there, that it's a, a, a subdued environment, uh, lots of money around, people can make big, big, big mistakes. You know, a lot of people think about that famous remark um, by Citicorp's truck prince back the, in 2007, the, the we have to keep on dancing while the music's playing. Right. Uh, there are people worried about that music now. There's a separate thing going on here in that you're almost like the poster child for China's opening up to the world towards globalization, yep. liberalism, yep. and now we're living in a world where we have trade wars, we've got walls going up, a lot of uncertainty over what that means for investment markets, for geopolitics, for yep. U.S.-Chinese relations. Yep. How do you how do you navigate this? What do you what do you just how do you feel at a personal level, and how do you navigate it as a as a big investor for Calpers? Yeah. So how to navigate as a big investor uh, as Calpers? So. Geopolitical risk is, you know, always a risk. But you're absolutely right. For investors, for people like me, very limited experience or training, mostly based on investment, it's hard for us to have a framework or view on geopolitical risk, generally speaking. And today, the world is in a fraught with geopolitical risk or new kind of risk or new thinking, you know, uh, uh, unorthogonal thinking approach to geopolitical risk, right? Uh, we haven't seen before. So even the political analysts, they may have struggling with predicting the future. And also, you know, as you know, that in investment, try to predict the future is a fool's errand, let alone, you know, geopolitical risk, something that you are not trained for. So what we do, as also as a large investor, you cannot be that nimble, right? So what we, for one, we stay long-term focus. We, we try to look for what really matters, a long-term trend, and something we can have a view or have control. And more importantly, to do scenario planning. Instead of forecasting the outcome, you forecast the broad, broad spectrum of the outcome and uh, do scenario planning and see what are the scenarios you should be the most concerned with and be the most prepared for. So instead of, again, as I said, pr- pr- try to predict the point Estimate, you, you you know is the distribution. Prepare yourself for all the different scenarios. And so, what what scenarios concern you now? I mean, we, there is concern that you know global supply chains are being yep. broken apart. Yep. Uh, that could affect you know the returns company by company, country by country. Yep. What what uh, what do you see as the big risk? So that is one. Uh, the risk is really as we speak now. Look at the markets. Is how much of these 
trade uncertainty plus geo other geopolitical risk uncertainty like Iran, right, just happening now, uh, how much of that uncertainty really affect confidence, both business confidence and consumer confidence? And we see that business confidence has been impacted already. And the manufacturer sector globally, you can say that's slowing down, right? So would that spill over into consumer confidence? You know, in the U.S., consumer account for almost 80% of the economy. Right? But we also know that consumer psychology or consumer sentiment is fickle. They can change you know, very quickly. So would that, from business, spill into consumer, the confidence? And also, would that, from uh, manufacturer sector, spill into a uh, service sector uh, or the uh, consumer sector? So that what worries about me. So we're kind of, we have to monitor the uh, situation very closely. But have you taken any actual decisions, different decisions, reallocated money because of uh, these new trade threats? Uh, I would say no. Again, I said that we try not to because, as you know, the trade one day up, one day down. Sure. You know, one day there's a deal, and then next thing you know, there's no deal. It's hard to uh, give our sides to be nimble. But what I would like to say we have been taking uh, steps, all public information, to position our portfolio uh, uh, for where we believe the economic environment we are. And as you know, we move to uh, risk segment work, uh, where we have long treasury segment, long high yield uh, segment, and a long spread segment. So these long treasury and spread segments has been uh, helping. And then on the global equity side, we also have you know risk segment as well. So we're trying to position our portfolio according to our long longer term view, and we treat geopolitical risk almost like a noise until they become not noise anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about at a personal level? How do you feel this? You are you're a dual citizen, right? Uh, no, China and US? so uh, I'm a U.S. citizen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But so I don't know if you faced any kind of um, you know I don't know if that's Animosity, if you've felt any kind of, you're in a very visible position right, right, at a right, time when right. U.S. China relations are uh, not, not, not very good. <laughs> not ideal. Do, do you feel it in a personal way? Do um, you ever. Uh, I do occasionally, yeah. but I try to ignore it. Again, you know, at least the reason, one of the reasons I uh, chose to become a U.S. citizen is because free speech mm. and the freedom here, right? And I trust the legal system here, the democratic system here. I was fortunate enough that I could be a citizen pretty much of any country, yeah. but I chose to be a U.S. citizen because we have the best uh, political system and the legal system. Uh, but occasionally you do hear some noise, so I try to ignore them. Uh, again, in the realm of a free speech, people can say anything they want to. But what... Um, it's, it's good. It's good to hear you right. reinforce those values because sometimes it feels like they're very much under threat here at home. Yeah, yeah. and also... Um, Try not to take personally, because no matter, it's, it's whoever sits in this seat, as you said, you know, corporate CIO is a very visible position, you like it or not, in a way, actually, I don't like it too much. Yeah. Uh, but it comes with these kind of uh, attacks or garbage, you know, if you're called, called garbage. And also something I really I keep on reminding myself, what Michelle Obama once said, when they go low, you go high, right? You can all them and trust the system, uh, which I do, you know, so... That's my take on it. So just focus on your job, do a good job, why I'm here, uh, here for the people and for the purpose. And if you came on doing a good job, you know, ignore the noise. It's a very minor minority, and it's expected. I mean, as you said, that 
the society a little bit divided now, and the U.S.-China relationship is not ideal. And it so happened I'm Chinese-American. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm American, but yes. I was born in China. Yeah. Right? So somewhat expected, yeah. but the approach to me is really to ignore them, you know, focus on what, uh, why, you came, why I came back, and uh, when they go low, you go high. Well, that's a great message in yeah. terms of your attitude and in terms of the kind of vision you bring here to, uh, to CalPERS. So, Ben, thanks for the time, and I oh, uh, wish you. you the best of luck. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Freddie Joyner for his excellent production skills, and hats off to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Exchange and our sister show, The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you snag your podcasts from. Join us again next week for another edition.